This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Sheba, here's the headline. I found the story interesting. and you, Maybe you've got the same lens, different lens, slight tweak. Here's the headline. Hate crimes in Toronto down slightly from year before, still higher than pre-pandemic. That's from police. And I, I'm just shocked by the low numbers. And I know we're supposed to do this. And I think we should do this when there's something awful that happens, clearly that involves um, violence. We, it, it's a massive story. It tears at all our hearts. And it's not a Absolutely. great day. It's not a great day when you got to tell people it's the anniversary of something. We just did that with the Toronto van attack. We'll do that early next month with the, the, the horrific, um, you know, uh, pickup truck murder of four of that five members of that family in London, Ontario, who were just out for a walk. But the numbers I look at, I'm like, I don't you think if you just paid attention to the media and Twitter and endlessly numbers have gone down reported hate crimes in the biggest city in our country are down from 257 to 242 and they document that 91 of the 242 were motivated by race ethnicity and nationality look i'd like it if it were zero but i just think if you'd said to me honestly if you'd said to me greg how many do you think there i'd be like i don't know 1500 2000 like like six or seven a day these are just complaints right I agree, but you know what? This makes me. This leads me to believe that not everything is being reported. I agree with because you for there. It to be this low, there's no way there. I mean, I hear about an incident, someone on social media, someone you know, a, a friend of a friend, something happens to people. It cannot be this low. So I just don't believe things are being reported. And of those, uh, I'd say a certain percentage were motivated by race, ethnicity, and nationality. And from that, half were targeted to members of the black community. Uh, so these stats, they're very detailed, but I just don't think it shows the entire picture of what's I, happening in the city. I agree. So I think I think we're of two minds here, and, and we always use the phrase. I mean, you could name the, the show it, you know, often two things are true. I think we're never as divided and, and never it, it's never this, oh, my goodness, it's a tightrope to leave my house every day. Someone will roll down their window and scream at me. I, I think we're we're in a better place. I think neighbors like each other. Something happens, a big snowstorm or a cat goes missing and people just get together and they help each other. I really think there's more good than bad in our whole universe and, and on our streets. Yeah. That said, to your point. I you've you've raised the point before, and I think this is true. Let's say on public transit, some guy because it's going to be a guy harassing a woman. Well, it, I doubt. I strongly doubt every woman's dialing nine one one, going, "Okay, let me tell you my story," no, or "Let me go down to the police." Not. They're just like, but but I get the anger. They'll come home and tell their husband. They'll go home and tell their boyfriend. They'll call their parents if they're a younger student, and that's it's outrageous to me but i i get it you're like what what's anyone gonna do they'll believe me more than likely but what's the end game here what do i want do i want to get scrutinized maybe they don't and so they don't you, you've said it before so many women have dealt with some jerk either showing them something or making something some kind of suggestive oh, look to them I'd on, say on every transit single, right. every single woman after a certain age and at that late age i would say is a very young age every single woman has been through something uh, that she didn't want to be a part of related to a male. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't think there's much doubt. And we're about not reporting that. that. What am I going to do? Report it? Cause someone, you, you just said it because someone said something to me on the TTC on the go train. Somebody said something to me at the grocery store. I'm not reporting that. I'm not letting that take up any more time in my day. You would know, the inconvenience of just having to file that report. And obviously it depends on the severity of the crime. Some things should absolutely be reported, but in certain circumstances, no, even if I'm called uh, a racial 
word, right? I, I'm a person of color. If I was called uh, something that I deemed as racist, yeah. I still wouldn't report it. I don't. I just can't be bothered. What's the point? Yeah, I know. I, I think we. I wonder if we all have that line where we'd step in, right? If if look if your kid was called a name at school, if my kid was was bullied and, and harassed at school, then I'm like, you know what? Now it's time to, you know, now it's time to call the principal and find out what's going on there. Now it's time in some cases to involve the authorities. But to your point, you're right. All of this stuff is underreported. But I do think, you know, we look and, and there's there's constant stories, right? There's there's somebody's put a swastika on a kid's locker at a school. There's been a mosque, uh, you know, an incident in a mosque parking lot. It does feel like it's all around us sometimes. This gives me only the slightest sense. To, I'll give the number again. 242 reported hate crimes in a city of 4 million people. No way. In a year. Of course, there aren't that many. And and that's just the reports. So there there is somebody who, who may make a call when somebody rolls down a window and yells. The person yelling, yeah, I wish that person wasn't doing that. I wish that person wasn't in our midst and in, in our community, but, but it, it's, it's, that's not get, nine times out of 10. I bet you that's, that's not getting a phone call um to, to nine one one or to a police station. So it doesn't mean it's not happening. No, of course it's happening. And 91% of it, like I said, are mot- is motivated mm-hmm. by race, ethnicity, nationality, according to the study. And it just makes me wonder, I mean, since, you know, our London family, since that attack, I think we've all had so much more of awareness and we're talking about it more. I don't believe these numbers are accurate. There's no way in the, in the population that we have, we're just not reporting it. And I think, I, I, I mean, you said it. I think it happens more if you're going to say men or women. I think more women deal with the harassment, but the hate crimes can go across anybody and everybody depending on where you are and what you do. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's complicated. It's unfortunate, and it's just not an accurate depiction of what's happening. It, it, it's not. It's not. And and I saw like even two days ago. Um, I know it's it's Pride Month is next month. Um, and we had the conversations about the Pride flag with a couple different guests in the last few weeks. But just it's kind of it kind of went by quietly. Two days ago was the International Day against homophobia, transphobia, biphobia. And I look up just data and Canada is like one of the greatest countries to be homosexual in. Like, I don't know how else to say it. It's it's one of the the safest. There's there's anti-discrimination legislation. Marry who you want to marry. Adoption, um, transgender rights, intersex rights can like like everything sort of I know it feels like that. Hate crimes will still happen. Hate, against, hate crimes will still happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, we are very forward thinking and very, um, I don't like the word tolerant because we don't mm. need to tolerate anybody, but you know, we are accepting, uh, more than other countries, but we have a long way to go. We've got a long way to go. And, and look, it's, um, like I'd even make the case that gender identity and transgender, it's complex. I think, yes. I think most people favor absolutely favor love who you want to love be who you want to be identify how you want to identify and we'll we've got your back when it comes to discrimination can i ask a question about um adult sports or uh, medical care for 14 years can i ask those questions you need i to, think though. i can craig <laughs> you need to you need to the position that you're in you are one of the main people who should be asking those questions and not because of any type of uh 
uh, it's not bias or discrimination. No, no, that's it. It's because there's a responsibility there. It's an education as well for you, for me, for anybody who's listening. These conversations absolutely need to happen. Thank you. Part of the reason, that, yeah, and part of the reason we got to where we are in the 70s and 80s is people said, I don't know, like what's what's wrong with them um, two men marrying and, and raising a child together? They asked those questions when it was unpopular to ask yes. those questions back then. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Paul Johnson is a uh, global BC reporter. He's worked all over the place. He's worked in uh, the States, worked in Washington, D.C., which is in the States. Um, The story was about prescribed opioids being sold on B.C. streets. And I spoke to him yesterday about this. I wanted to start. He got a ton of response to this particular story. And I think there's a window here and a lens for Toronto. And there's certainly a lens and a lot of debate about safe supply, safe injection sites, what it decriminalization versus enforcing drug laws. Um, here's our conversation. I mentioned that it's been an incredibly responded to story. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, a lot of people were watching this story. Normally, a local news story that I post um, gets between 50 and 100 views. This story I posted after we ran it on Monday night and it's had 50,000 views. Yeah. So this hit in a way that was on a higher order of, um, you know, a lot of the other uh, reporting uh, that we've done. Um, y- you never know what makes something go viral uh, in this yeah. day and age. There's a lot of components to it. Um, but I can surmise uh, one thing is governments are really desperate and rightly so to do something about the overdose epidemic. They just released new numbers here in British Columbia today. The tragedy continues. Um, Another tragic record-breaking month here in the month of April for overdose deaths. They need to do something to stop it. Um, You know, this is new territory. Yeah. Public health systems have not dealt with this level of uh, of use of, of dangerous opioids and drugs that are as powerful and as dangerous as fentanyl and the fentanyl uh, derivatives that are laced with all kinds of new drugs that show up all of the time. And they really need to do something. And they're trying new and different things. Um, There's a lot of controversy about whether these things are working or not. And people are really paying attention to this. And so I think that speaks to uh, why there's been such high consumption of this story. So, Paul, B.C. has put in an exemption and they put it in what at the end of January and it'll run to the end of January of 2026. So we're not even four months in um, to it. Is there any way I want to talk about some of what you saw anecdotally for sure in your story. But is there any way to dig into numbers which you just mentioned? I mean, there's there's two sides, right? The idea is this is a crisis. We hope the decriminalizing possession but not legalizing possession helps the crisis. Some are going to say you're making it worse. You're saving lives and and making it better and and extending at least out the process. But there's just a lot of divided opinions and we're not even four months into a 36 month project. This is one of the most divisive issues in North American politics I've ever covered. I worked in the United States for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, I covered abortion battles i covered gun rights battles this is right up there for canada this is the equivalent of our gun control debate people have really dug in positions on this and um you know it's i mean talk to doctors for one that's just one 
uh, aspect of the reporting that we've been doing. We hear doctors who say safe supply, uh, which is one component of of how they're trying to uh, address this opioid disaster and reduce the death toll. Um, there are many doctors we talk to who say safe supply is working. I have patients. I prescribe hydromorphone, dilated pills to them. They take these instead of going out and getting fentanyl on the street. It's saving lives. But there are other doctors, and I've spoken with many of them. Um, many of them feel that it's too controversial for them to speak publicly, but they'll talk to you off the record. And they're also veteran addictions doctors, and they disagree. Uh, they say the way forward is treatment and is persuading and compelling uh, in ways that you know we don't even really yet know what to do, but getting people into treatment and getting them off opioids is the way forward. And they highly disagree with uh, the Safe Supply Program. They say putting more drugs into the population is not the solution. We need to do less. So we're really at loggerheads here. I mean, the, the medical community is divided on this. Yeah. Paul Johnson's joining us uh, from Global Television. You can uh, see his report at globalnews.ca. He's joining us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Um, and uh, and I don't know whether it falls strictly along. You mentioned abortion, which often falls strictly along political lines. I see a larger Venn diagram with this based on based on people's anecdotal experiences, based on something they may have gone through in their family with addiction. I, I, I know I know, especially federally, there feels like there's an alignment. The liberals think this, the conservatives think that. But I just talk to people who who, you know, who don't get in front of microphones and aren't politicians. And I, me, I get a wide variety of opinions on this. Some some are absolutely blow my mind. People who lean right on almost a lot of issues that think, oh, this is a great idea. And I see people who lean left more than right on issues saying we're making a big mistake here. I see all sides. Yeah, it's much more complicated uh, than just a, a traditional left right uh, uh, axis. Um, there's a lot of people who would identify as being members of the political uh, right who say, I'm fine with this. Um, mm -hmm. We shouldn't be prosecuting drug users criminally for possession. We should be putting them into treatment. They're fine with that. Uh, I'm fine with safe supply. Uh, if we can give uh, drug users drugs that won't kill them and they're under the care of their doctor, and uh, as the saying goes, break the link between the user and the drug dealer and strengthen the link between the drug user and their doctor, they're for that. But what they are willing and what they are wanting to question and in many cases criticize is the way the government is carrying it out, is the way that the government yeah. here in British Columbia is executing this is the right way to go. Was the decriminalization bill um, the right way to move forward? This actually wasn't a bill. It was an administrative decision. But is this the right thing to do? Um, a few months ago, I went down to Oregon, to Portland. And Portland, um, the state of Oregon, uh, about two years prior to BC's um, journey into decriminalization of hard drugs, they decriminalized there. And for many of the same reasons of you know what was going on here in British Columbia, um, skyrocketing uh, rates of overdose deaths, and they were wanting to do something. Their method of decriminalization was a little bit different, but uh, essentially it's, it's a very similar population demographically. It's a similar region. And so we went down there to see what has gone on. And we found that after two years of decriminalization of hard drugs, ostensibly to remove the stigma of criminality and hopefully 
get users to feel better about going into treatment, talking about what's going on with them. They thought that this would reduce the drug overdose deaths. Um, the numbers came out a couple of months ago for 2022, um, and they were up by a, a vast margin again. Mm -hmm. Now, proponents of decriminalization would say they'd be way higher if we hadn't done decriminalization. Opponents say, look at this, more evidence this isn't working. Every metric, every time the coroner's service, either in the state of Oregon or here in British Columbia today, it seems every time they release their numbers, it's another tragedy. And those who support decriminalization and safe supply say this means we need to double down on that. Those who oppose say this isn't working. Give your head a shake. And we're still not out of this. Paul Johnson's a global BC reporter. I highly recommend. I urge you uh, run, don't walk. Do whatever you can to go to globalnews.ca and watch his story about open drug use and the opioid crisis on downtown Vancouver streets. Is this only a Vancouver story? No, I think it's a big city story. I think it's a, an important big city story given it was just at the end of January. So they're barely three months in where they decriminalized all drugs. This seems to be a mayoral uh, issue. I'd like it to become more of an issue, I suppose. And I think it's important to pin down these candidates um, and especially the front runners. Okay. The Matlows, the Bylaws, the Chows, the Bradfords. Mark Saunders is pretty on the record about not wanting to decriminalize. He doesn't want to throw people in jail for drug arrests, but he doesn't want to decriminalize either. And I'll give you some data on the other side of this. But yeah, uh, Paul Johnson was able to go around, do a remarkable story. I wouldn't have had the courage to do it um, to basically be buying drugs in the open scene in Vancouver um, as a reporter. Didn't use them and, and didn't resell them or anything. But he told us in a chat I had with him yesterday that they are very, very accessible. Well, there was um, in in our little investigation that we did. Now, I should be clear. This doesn't have the weight of a peer reviewed academic paper. Mm -hmm. um, this was a, a one off daily news report. Where we were very simply we had heard this controversy. Some saying the streets are awash right now uh, with dillies what they call dilaudid pills, also known as hydromorphone, that had been prescribed under the BC Safe Supply Program to users, and uh, they don't want them, or they had too many of them, or for whatever, so they resold them on the streets or traded them to get drugs that they want, presumably fentanyl because it's stronger. This was the lingo. So we wanted to see if this is true. Can I walk down to Maine and Hastings in Vancouver and see if you can buy dailies on the street? And so we went down last Friday, it was about 12 noon. And um, yeah, in about 25 minutes, I was able to buy uh, 26 Dilaudid tablets for 30 bucks. So for a little bit more than a buck a pill, uh, we got 26 Dilaudid tablets. We went to the testing facility that they have uh, in that neighborhood, uh, which is a free testing facility where people can go and get their drugs tested to find out if there's fentanyl in them or what's going on with them. Uh, they confirmed that they were, in fact, hydromorphone, Dilaudid. Uh, and um, we also spoke with a doctor who is part of the Safe Supply Program who took a look at the packaging because we had some unopened blister packs. And uh, this doctor said, yep, those are the ones that come from our safe supply program. So so what we found was dillies were for sale. Um, they were, in fact, actual dillies. They appeared to be similar to the ones that were part of the safe supply program. Also, 
How else would Dillies show up for sale on the streets? I mean, you can only get these through prescriptions. So what is the source of these? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know exactly. And we didn't claim to say we know exactly, but you can certainly get Dillies on the street. And that was something that had been in question prior to that. There's been a lot of controversy about that. How would you describe the streets? You're doing this in, in broad daylight. Um, but, you know, we because we hear things in Toronto and, and you'd be, you know, I love Vancouver. I love Vancouver like you wouldn't believe. And I was a boyhood Canucks fan, for lack of a better term. Um, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, I know. Frustrating, <laughs> frustrating times all around uh, lately. Yeah. But but I'd say this. You often hear in Toronto, of all places, we want to make sure we don't turn into Vancouver. That is that that's a that's a bold statement, but that's also a demonstrative statement from people who see footage. Give us a sense three time zones away. What's real? What's exaggerated? What's imagined from you being on these streets and, and the drug trade? OK, well, Vancouver writ large is not some kind of uh, zombie apocalypse, yeah. uh, you know, uh, post civilizational hellscape. Um, uh, there is a part of town. That has struggled for many years where there are complex socioeconomic psychosocial problems that's known as the downtown east side um it's a comparatively very small part of the city but it's where some of the biggest problems are concentrated uh namely an intersection of of drug use drug addiction uh untreated mental health problems and a fair bit of crime and that's where we went. That's where this was going on. And for 30 years, um, this has been an area that has been known as a place where there is open drug sales happening. It's not happening everywhere in the city. Most parts of Vancouver don't have this going on. But in the part where we went, with respect to the Dillies, there not only were Dillies for sale, there was what seemed to be pretty clear to me um, a robust aftermarket in these. Because as I was asking people if they had dillies for sale, people were then also asking me if I had dillies for sale because they wanted to buy from me. Yeah. Of course, I didn't have that. And um, I mean, to me, what that showed is um, it's known that these pills are available down there and there's people going down there to both buy and sell. This appeared to be the existence of a robust aftermarket for a drug that is being prescribed by the government here. Your report was fantastic, um, and it was awesome journalism. So thank you very much for sharing uh, uh, how you did it and uh, your reaction to it and the subsequent reaction to it out there for us in Toronto. We appreciate it. Okay, have a great show. Last poll I saw. That's um, a remarkable report from Paul Johnson. Last poll I saw. Uh, BC, this is from uh, Polling Canada. Those who say the province is doing a poor job on housing affordability. Well, you and I might say every province is doing a lousy job on it right now. 83%. Poverty, homelessness, 80%. Drug use, opioid crisis, 73%. I don't know how we'd poll here in Ontario. It might be, it wouldn't possibly be as high as it is in BC. And a lot of people gave credit to the BC government. They pushed, they pushed and tugged and pulled and, and they got Ottawa to give it a go um, to, to, to basically decriminalize small amounts of illicit drugs. But you just heard the data right there. The numbers are higher. They're worse. They're absolutely worse. And there's a lot of MPs and a lot of mayors in British Columbia saying they need a different approach because um, people are still dealing and people are still being violent and people are still robbing and people aren't getting clean. 
We're not getting people into treatment. We're producing, we're allowing safe supply. We're not getting people help to stop the addiction. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Yesterday was a big announcement at Queen's Park. But it may be the first of some to come. There's a lot of regions that are getting examined. Um, Simcoe region's going to. Durham region's going to. I've talked to friends in Kitchener-Waterloo. They're like, what's going to happen here? So a lot is up in the air. Uh, we want to welcome on the mayor of Caledon. Um, by the way, she had a remarkable, remarkable line that's gone uh, viral. We won't get her to repeat it, but it was great. Um, I liked it. And she was elected as mayor with 58% of Caledon uh, turning out to vote for her last fall. She is Annette Groves. Mayor Groves, thanks very much for the time today. I appreciate you coming on the show. Good morning. Thank you, Greg, for having me this morning. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to tell you, one of um, when you t- start to type in your name, Annette Groves, uh, to Google, um, Annette Groves' husband is the second so... You know, like uh, that's moved up in the charts a little bit. I don't know. I don't know if other people have reached out to him, but we're only talking to you this morning. We only want your side of the story. Well, thank you, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they don't have a Ned Grove's dog. How? Uh, tell us about your dog. I'm a big dog lover. How, what's what's your dog like? Oh, I have an amazing dog. We adopted him. Um, for well, I adopted him for my son. My son was nine years old. My son is now twenty-one years old. <laughs> his, uh, his name is Enzo, and he is a little Chihuahua Pekingese. Um, so I, I adopted him from a foster home. He's an amazing, amazing dog with a great personality. Loves people, and uh, you know he's the Best friends with my son and, and Enzo are just best buddies. Oh, I like that personal touch, and, and you taught your son uh, responsibility at an early age. Um, yesterday's news conference was was intriguing. Um, Kaladin, what are your residents telling you? I mean, what are they hopeful? Can this be seen as a positive for Kaladin to gain independence and, and do your own thing while still not losing out on, on any of, of what's around you in Peel Region? So it's it's a mixed, uh, you know, we've got uh, mixed feelings in our community. Um, it, of course, the anxiety level is quite high because our, our future um, is now uncertain. And with the growth that we're scheduled to take over the next two decades, it's, it's making uh, many of my residents, including myself and mm-hmm. uh, members of council and our senior leadership team, a little concerned about how we're going to move forward in terms of um, funding the infrastructure that we need to support the growth that we're expected to take over the next two decades. So let's check some boxes about what Caledon is, because I think it gives a great microcosm for people in their own communities. You run your own, you run your own fire, right? Every, like every, there's a town of Caledon fire and emergency services. So this should be unaffected. That's right. Fire is unaffected. We have Caledon uh, uh, OPP here. So we're not policed by Peel Regional Mm -hmm. Police. So that's not affected, but we certainly have um, a lot of services that the region appeal has provided over the last almost 50 years um, to Caledon, such as um, social services, uh, health services, long-term care, affordable housing, supportive housing, uh, garbage collection, uh, water and wastewater. We've got 12 regional roads in Caledon that the region appeal maintains. Um, so a number of services will be um, impacted 
um, because the region has been a great provider of these services for Kaladin. Ambulance services, I see, look like they're run by Peel, Peel Regional Paramedic Services. So do you have to do your own ambulances now out of your town budget in the future? What, what do you know about that? Well, and, and I think these are early days, um, yeah. Greg, as uh, you know, th- this was just announced yesterday. And as I said yesterday, I am confident that the, that this is not an announcement that came lightly or a decision that came lightly on the part of the province. The province knows the, the funding that we need in order to make all three municipalities whole. And the province has committed that they would make us whole. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things would be ironed out, I guess, and negotiated through the um, the transition board that's being put in place right now. Annette Groves is our guest mayor of Caledon um, joining us in Toronto today. It was referenced a bunch of times, which you heard, and I mean, they named it the Hazel McCallion Act. This is, this is something the late former mayor of Mississauga had talked about, had wanted both Mississauga and Brampton have just grown exponentially more in the 90s than in the last 10 years or so. But I'd ask you, when you ran for mayor last year, and you, you've given you know two decades of service uh, to Caledon, either as a councillor or now mayor, was this on on your radar? Th- was this even in the back of your mind thinking this could happen over the next four years while I'm the mayor? Um, absolutely. There's been conversations at the region of Peel. Um, you know, this is their third, t- this is my third time going through this exercise. Mm-hmm. It started back in 2005 when, uh, the late Mayor McCallion started having those conversations with regards to, uh, separation. Um, you know, it was decided on by the region appeals council and Caledon's position has always been that the region has served us well and we were never in favor of uh, separation. So, you know, it, uh, it didn't come as a surprise. We knew that um, this, this would be a possibility and now we have to deal with the reality. Um, it's, I think it's a standard question to ask any, um, any head of a, of a elected body housing. I want to know how much Caledon is, is growing. Um, I see a population of 76,000 or so. Is there demand for more? By the way, you have that amazing, amazing golf course up there, uh, right? Uh, TPC Toronto at Osprey Valley. It's incredible. Um, and so that's where you should go for your golf vacations. Everybody don't, don't get on an airplane, go to, go to Caledon for a golf vacation, eat out restaurants, stay near there, have a great time. And anyway, um, what's your what's your um, housing demand? <laughs> you what? Caledon is absolutely a, a beautiful place. <laughs> you really don't need to go anywhere for your vacation. <laughs> We've got so many beautiful places here in Caledon. But um, with respect to growth, uh, Greg, we are we are expected to grow exponentially over the next two decades. Um, we're expected to take uh, grow from you know just under 80,000 to 300,000 over the next two decades. We're also expected to um, provide 13,000 mm. affordable housing units over the next eight years. And we've, uh, we've signed our pledge um, as, uh, as required by the province that we are pledging to uh, bring on those 13,000 affordable housing units over the next eight years. So with that said, we are and will be in need of a whole lot of dollars 
to provide the infrastructure to um, to accommodate that type of growth. I hear it. I got about a minute here. Peel District School Board will stay intact. I suppose that gives people an element of relief to some extent because it, it runs efficiently. It serves yes. close to 200,000 students. And if you're bringing on that many new houses, there's going to be parents with kids that'll like your son, like my kids, like lots of our listeners' kids will go through the system. So the the is it a relief that the school board stays together? I think so. I think that is a relief for the school boards. Um, and again, you know, I, I am very concerned about how we're going to accommodate and afford the growth that we're expected to take over the next two decades. But again, as I said yesterday, I am confident that the province will be stepping up. We've got uh, Minister Jones, the Deputy Premier, as our MPP. And Minister Jones will certainly be there alongside us um, advocating for our fair share at Queen's Park. And I am very confident that the the, uh, the Premier will certainly um, ensure that Caledon gets its fair share out of this whole um, deal. Well, I know you'll be a superb voice uh, for your people. It's lovely to have you on the show. Let's stay on this file, and, and I hope you have a great long weekend. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Greg, and happy uh, Victoria Day weekend to you as well. Abs- Thank you. Absolutely appreciate it. There's Annette Grove. She's the mayor of Caledon. That's really interesting to get that lens did you hear that statement about the growth? They're talking about Caledon going from you know, 65, 70,000 people to over 200,000. That's the expectation. So where does the infrastructure come from? What do you need from that point on? More retail, more transit, more stores, a gym, a restaurant, a, a tons of stuff, parking lots. You need a lot more than a smaller town can provide at the moment. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Are you in or out? Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So are we in or out? You're out. You are over and out. No, 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 no. You insulted him a little bit. I'm okay with it, but now you're making me feel weird about it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. All right, and our in out is all about this. I don't know why they call this stuff hamburger helper. It does just fine by itself, huh? Uh, I like it better than tuna helper myself. Don't you, Clark? You're the gourmet around here, Ed. (laughs) I'm a huge Cousin Eddie fan. Uh, All right, so it's charcoal versus gas grills. And Sheba, you and I want to give Gord the floor, I think, because he's on team charcoal. In the and summer. he's a king barbecuer. He's king, Mr. Mr. Barbecue. Yeah, I mean, just just follow his social media. It's it's yeah, endless. It's, just, it's an endless stream of of things on grills and beer, and that's about it. Well, that's it too. That's it. I'm very shallow. <laughs> and can, and if you get to Nashville again, uh, like you do a video tour of Graceland, absolutely. Why do you prefer it? This wouldn't have even been a debate in 1986. But gas grills now are more popular. But why are you old school, and why do you prefer charcoal? It's just the, you're more involved in it. It's the, the gas grill, the propane, which I also have, but it's just you put it on and forget it. If you're making burgers, propane all the way. But if you're doing something like oh. ribs or kebabs or something. Uh, Why? Just the flavor is better. It's got uh, a smoky flavor that does. I admit gas doesn't give you. And you can throw uh, you can throw uh, some uh, wood chips in there if you really want to enhance the smoky flavor. Just throw them right on the grill, uh, on the charcoal. And you got to build the fire. You got to tend it. You got to be more involved than just uh, walking away. My neighbor has it, and he d- documents that when even some of the drippings, um, if you will, fall on the coals, you get a bit yeah. of a flavor Absolutely. flavor coal, whereas with a gas grill, it just goes nowhere. It, yeah, just, it just, just becomes slime. It just turns into black it's smoke. A, and it's right. Just, yeah, it's not good. Yeah. All right. So um, Gord is in on charcoal grills. Would you ever, like, could you ever say, ah, it's too much 
too much bother and the brick and the bricks are briquettes no, are heavy. I just bought a new one. It's like okay. a couple weeks ago. Um, yes, I saw the picture of it. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I'm told uh, by a listener you can uh, grills actually charcoal grills reach a higher temperature faster That's than true. gas grills. You know how you got to close the lid yeah. with gas and wait it out yeah. a little bit. Um, if you like your meat black, come to the Brady it's like House. Driving a manual I, car, you got you're more involved in it in the <laughs> driving of it than uh, automatic. How am I supposed to eat a baconator uh, while coming from a workout? Which uh, is ah, never mind. Uh, <laughs> all right, so in or out charcoal grills. You heard you heard Gord uh, make his case. They're actually cheaper as well. Yes. I I did not know that they, they are yes. be moderately priced compared to the the gas. I mean, people can spend like. A thousand bucks on a really great gas grill. Oh no, you're closer to two. You're in the fifteen what? to two thousand for a good name brand. Ah, uh, you I, can get a, a name brand like a Weber, like I got for two hundred bucks for a gas grill, a little circular guy, and it's perfect. So Sheba, you're you're officially out because you don't have. I think we're out because we don't have one. No, but I've had one before, and I prefer. I'm out on this because I prefer <laughs> the gas barbecue. I think it's just more convenient. It's the ease of use, the speed of it, uh, the exact reason that you love your charcoal barbecue cord <laughs> is why I love my gas because it just, it's really quick. The, the heat is evenly distributed. Uh, and, you know, full disclosure, I'm not the main barbecuer in our house, but when every time I use it, it's just so mm. much easier. 416-870-6400. Gas grill. Uh-uh. Gord says charcoal. Are you in or out on the charcoal grill? We'll read some of your best texts. It'll make us hungry before 9 o'clock. Let's get inside the newsroom. 728. Gas. Yeah, charcoal. I'm a gas guy. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I respect Gord for his barbecue knowledge. And uh, that's about it. And, yeah. <laughs> No, for um, everything else. But, yes, of course. But yeah, <laughs> I just find the convenience of gas like Sheba is uh, is just, it outweighs the charcoal. Uh, charcoal you can kind of see when you're running out too. When yeah. you turn that propane on and nothing comes out and then you wiggle the tank and you know it's empty, it's soul sucking. I have a, I have a tank I with a little it. gauge on it. You're better, it, on, yeah, better man than me for I, that. It's fantastic. And a, so. You need a spare. Oh, yeah, I have a spare, yeah. 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 yeah.